Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 345. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And today I'm so delighted to introduce you to an author and researcher and professor who's going to break down for us how you can reverse engineer your way to really mastering your craft over the course of your career. So if you're the kind of person who's looking to get to that next level, who's always looking to be learning and growing, and I know you are because you're part of the Bossed Up listener base, this episode is perfect for you. But before we dive in, I want to share with you that enrollment is opening for the fall very soon for two of our most in-demand leadership development programs. The first is called Speak Up, which if you haven't heard me talk about it already, is one of our best-selling new accelerator programs. It's an eight-week assertive communication program for women professionals who want to learn how to master the art of of owning their voice in the workplace. So we cover everything from how to speak up off the cuff to be a more cogent, concise, and confident communicator to how to give great presentations and create slides that frankly don't suck. (laughs) So if you're interested in mastering your presenting skills, your speaking skills, definitely check out Speak Up Enrollment Open Soon, and I will drop a link in today's show notes with the details. Similarly, Level Up, our six-month leadership accelerator for first-time or aspiring managers, is opening for re-enrollment for the fall as well. So I want to make sure you know those details because it can take a few months to talk to your boss, to talk to HR, to secure the professional development funds that can help make this happen for you. And so if you're looking to really level up in your career and accelerate your success, be sure to check out Level Up and Speak Up in the show notes today. Without further ado, let me tell you a little bit about Ron Friedman. Ron is an award-winning psychologist who served on the faculty of the University of Rochester and has consulted for political leaders, nonprofits, and many of the world's most recognized brands. Popular accounts of his research have appeared in major newspapers, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe. The Globe and Mail, The Guardian, as well as magazines such as the Harvard Business Review and Psychology Today. He's also the founder of Ignite 80, a learning and development company that translates research in neuroscience, human physiology, and behavioral economics into practical strategies that help working professionals become healthier, happier, and more productive. His first book, The Best Place to Work, was selected as an Inc. Magazine Best Business Book of the Year. And today, we're going to talk quite a bit about his second and most recent book, Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. Ron, welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. It's great to be here. I'm delighted to be speaking with you and excited to hear 
more about your philosophy around reverse engineering your way to success. But before we dive in, how did you find yourself in this career trajectory that you're on and pursuing uh, the kind of career and the kind of work that you do at Ignite 80 and the, the multiple books that you've put out, including Decoding Greatness? Well, what led me to a career in psychology is I was actually interested in what is it that makes people happy. So I got interested in psychology around the time when positive psychology became a thing. Before yes. positive psychology, it was all uh, focused on what was wrong with people and how to <laughs> fix them. Fun. And positive psychology was a movement that started around the turn of the century that had to do with what about people who are thriving? What are they doing and how can we learn from them? And so I decided to go to grad school uh, when that was a thing. And, and I moved to, to Rochester where Ed DC and Richard Ryan, two experts in the field of motivation, were teaching. These are the guys who Dan Pink wrote about in his now classic book, Drive. Mm. And while doing that research, I became fascinated with what is it that top performers do differently. And uh, after teaching for a few years, I decided to go into the real world where I became a consultant and I worked in polling. My job was to figure out what people think and how to mm. shift their opinions by using psychological principles. And in that process of working in the corporate world, what I discovered is that there's a huge gap between the principles that psychologists know about the factors that lead people to be more motivated and engaged and creative and how most organizations operate. There's a right. huge gap. And so that led me to write my first book. And that book was called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. And in it, I took over a thousand academic studies and translated them into plain English so that regardless of whether you're a CEO or just someone starting out, you had access to the best research on how to create a great workplace, but also to elevate your performance. Mm. But there was something missing in that book. And what was missing is that even in the best workplaces, there's a range of performance levels. Right. Some people are top performers and others are not. And in this book, Decoding Greatness, I was curious about what is it that top performers do differently? And what I discovered is that they're using a strategy that few people have heard of that is remarkably consistent for mm. uh, inventors and artists and entrepreneurs. And that process is reverse engineering. I love it. And I can see the through line from Positive Psychology 101 through to reverse and uh, reverse engineering your way to success, which we're going to talk about. I love that what you're essentially helping us do is, is combat our negativity bias as humans, right? Like mm -hmm. a lot of the hardest working, most analytical, critical thinkers I know, uh, which has been drilled into so many of us in our K through 12 education, really focus on problem solving. And let's look at what's not working and focus mm -hmm. on how to shore those weaknesses up instead of saying, well, what is working out there and how do we maximize those strengths? So let's dig into reverse engineering. What what does that concept look like for the everyday professional who wants to accelerate their success? And how is it different than what we've been taught around what makes for a successful career? Yeah, great question. So reverse engineering simply means studying the best in your field and then working backward to figure out how they did it. So before I get into giving you some examples of how that can operate for you, let me just uh, take a step back and explain the big idea for this book, which yeah. is that we've been taught two main stories about how success happens. And the two main stories are one, success comes from talent. So this is the idea that we're all born with certain inner strengths and that the key to finding your 
greatness and achieving success is identifying a field that allows you to put those strengths to use. Mm. The second big story is that success and greatness come from practice. And this is the story that we all heard from the the Malcolm Gladwell perspective of practice, practice, practice. As Mm. long as you have the right practice regimen and you have the discipline to do it for a really long time, then eventually you'll be successful. Mm. But as it turns out, there's a third path. And that third path is, again, one that so many people have been using and people don't often talk about. And that's why I decided to write about write about it in this book. And that's reverse engineering. So again, it's just finding a great examples and then working backward to figure out how they were created. Now, there's a very long history of people reverse engineering uh, winning products in Silicon Valley. It's how we mm-hmm. got the personal computer and the laptop and the iPhone. All of that was grounded in people who were who identified great technologies or great products that were being underutilized and then applying them in new directions. Mm. That same approach is at the core of how writers like Malcolm Gladwell and Stephen King learned to write and how artists like Pablo Picasso and Claude Monet became amazing artists. And even how Judd Apatow learned how to write comedy. It Mm. was all about figuring out what was working for someone else and then working backward to identify ways of applying those techniques in their fields. And I can, you know, give you lots of examples of making that more concrete for you. But I can say that, you know, this is, again, a very, very broad process. And how you apply it really depends on your particular field. Mm -hmm. So I'm a writer. And I can tell you that writers, nonfiction writers in particular, like me, what we often do when we get a book is we don't look at the table of contents or we we don't dive into chapter one. We go right to the end of the book to identify the sources that went into creating the book because that tells us, okay, this author is reading this journal or looking at stories in this genre. And then actually we can predict what the book is going to be about just by looking at the sources. Love me those Um, footnotes, right? You got to don't don't skim over those footnotes. They're full (laughs) of information. I love it. It Really, the way I describe it in the book is it's kind of like when, imagine if you went and you ate in a fancy restaurant and then you had the opportunity to peek into the chef's cupboard and to see what the ingredients were. That's what this is. Chefs, by the way, will often order dishes to go. And we'll uh, spread a sauce out on a white plate and use a magnifying glass to identify what the ingredients were. That's another example of reverse engineering. Photographers, when they look at images, they don't just look at the object of the image like I would because I'm a novice, but they will look at clues like things like the lengths of the shadows that tell them the time of day that the image was taken and the location of the light source. So Mm -hmm. the critical thing and the critical um, mindset really is the key here is thinking about not just Uh, not just to passively enjoy an experience, but to consistently ask, how is this constructed? What can I learn from this? And how does this apply to a project that I'm working on? Well, what's interesting about the reverse engineering philosophy is that I can see how it applies to one's craft, right? Your pursuit of mastery Mm -hmm. and how you're essentially bringing a a critical eye towards dismantling, okay, what went into the composition of that shot that was so uh-huh. effective, right? But it can also apply to your <laughs> career crushes or your idols, your mentors. I call them career crushes here at Bust Up, who are people who you're like, yes, what they're doing, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by, and that's the that's the kind of career I want to pursue as well. So it can almost apply to people as well as their trade. How would you go about telling someone who's like, okay, if I want to reverse engineer my way uh, and be the Aristotle to this Plato, right? How would I 
how would I begin mm-hmm. making that happen if I'm a mid-career woman who's, you know, who's looking to advance to the C-suite ultimately? Yeah, I'm going to give you a strategy that is applicable to any field and is actually the first step to reverse engineering, particularly when it comes to knowledge work. And that first step is to become a collector. And what I mm. mean by that is, you know, when we think about collections, we often think about physical objects. We think about stamps or wines or artwork, but that definition is far too narrow. I can tell you the best mm. copywriters collect headlines. The best designers collect logos and websites. I'm a writer, so I collect powerful words. I collect good stories. I collect uh, academic journal articles that I may be, may be useful to me later on. And what having a collection allows you to do is it creates a space that you can visit anytime you're looking for inspiration, but you can also mm. then start to parse out what's working in these examples. And by comparing the ordinary, meaning the things that didn't make your collection, against the right. extraordinary, the items in your collection, you can't help but notice the ingredients that go into creating something powerful. And so just to make this concrete, let's say you've got that career crush and that person is really, really good at writing client emails. Mm. What you would do is you would save some of those client emails in a directory or you could bookmark them or you could just start a Google Doc and then start working backwards and figuring out, hey, here's somebody who's not very good at client emails. What's different? What are they doing differently? And what you might notice are some very specific elements like people who are really good at client emails tend to start off with their email with a non-work matter. They talk to their client like they're a friend or they talk to them like they're someone who's on the same team and they're sharing information about something they've connected on that has nothing to do with work. And they're reinforcing the relationship mm-hmm. before they get to an ask. Then they might ask and they may provide the ask. Like, let's say the person is like um, supposed to sign a contract and they haven't done it yet. So what you might start off with, again, is that non-work matter. Then you go to the, to the talking about the contract, then explaining to the client why having a contract signed now is going to benefit them. So talking right. in terms of benefits is another key. And then closing the email again with a non non-work related matter that has to reinforces the relationship. Those are some elements you might discover by just collecting emails. And the same applies to other things like Mm. collecting presentation decks, collecting proposals, collecting um, memos. All of that comes from starting the collection, which is why that's the first step. I love that. And so the collection is the assets of, of what the work product is that you're looking to reproduce, whatever your craft may be. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I can tell you that, you know, this is a little bit tangential, but I think it's important. I think a lot of folks assume that if I study someone else's work too carefully, that I'm not going to be creative or I'm going to be a hack. And the truth is that that this is how we learn. We learn by critically analyzing Mm. exemplary work and understanding what makes it successful. And there's fascinating research that I talk about uh, in Decoding Greatness that shows that if you actually take the time to do this, you will become more creative, mm. not less creative. And there's a, there's a key reason for that, and I'll, I'll tell you more in this study. This is research out of the University of Tokyo where creativity experts brought amateur artists into mm-hmm. the lab and they divided them up into two groups. One group they told to just create original drawings for three days straight. The second group they had create original drawings, but on the second day they had them copy the work of an established artist. And then on the third day they resumed their original works. 
And what they were curious to see is which of the two groups was more creative on the final day, the group that had just done creative work the entire time or the group that had paused to study somebody else's work more carefully. Mm. And what they found was it was the latter group. It was the group that had copied. And it's because when you take the time to uh, copy somebody else's work, in other words, very critically analyzing it and, and reproducing it to the point where you're like, you're taking that email and you're trying to rewrite it for memory. Right. What happens is that you are forced to compare your instinctive inclinations, which is the thing you wanted to write against the, the, the choices of a master, what the person actually wrote. Mm. And that process of trying to do what you want to do and then comparing it to what someone else's did, that, that opens your eyes up to new opportunities that are hidden within your own work. So far from making us less creative, it's actually a pathway to not just learning, but also elevating our creativity. Right. I can hear the squeamishness of some of my listeners who are thinking, but uh, is that allowed? <laughs> you know what I mean? I think there's yeah. a lot of permission seeking uh, that a lot of our clients express like, can I can I do that? And I think of Austin Kleon's excellent book, Steal Like an Artist. I don't know if you've read that. Sure. Um, it's such a great, small, quick coffee table read. But, uh, you know, creative copying is learning. Isn't that what higher education is? We're reading other people's work and 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 critically processing and and being influenced by it. So I do I agree with you 100%. What would you say to someone who goes, "Ooh, is that cheating?" Yeah, no, first of all, I, I would say there's a difference between reverse engineering and copying. So copying is uh, obviously taking someone else's work and passing it off as your own. Here, what we're talking about is just having a more analytical approach to understanding why someone else was successful. That said, if you were to just copy, I think that chances are you actually will be unsuccessful. And let me tell you why that is. It's for two reasons. One is that what tends to work for someone else is a combination of the actual work and also their background, mm. their personality, what is authentic to them. And that may or may not be the case for you. So you're taking a little bit of a risk there. The other component is that audience expectations shift over time. So what was successful for someone else last year may not be successful for you this year because your audience has evolved. So uh, give an example in the, in the book of the book uh, of the um, young adult novel, Twilight. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. So Twilight, when the book came out, it was incredibly popular. It's the story of a young adult who falls in love with a vampire. And it led to just a rush of all these copycat books. And what ended up happening is that very few of them ended up being successful. <laughs> right. What was successful, though, was Abraham Lincoln as a vampire hunter. So it was taking <laughs> the formula and evolving it ever right. so slightly. And there's research showing that if you want to be successful – what you want to do is you want to find a winning formula and evolve it just slightly enough so that it feels fresh. What you don't want to do, though, is be completely original because mm. as a species, we tend to distrust the unknown and that fear extends to the way we interpret something that's completely new. Yeah. So if you look at products that have become incredibly successful, like the smartwatch, today's Apple smartwatch, it might seem like the height of innovation. Uh, and it is an amazing gadget. I love it. But it's not an original. 
the first smartwatch was introduced over 20 years ago and failed miserably and it had many of the same features. It reported traffic, it reported news, it reported the weather, it fell flat. And it's because audiences weren't ready for it. Right. So what they, they needed was they needed the iPhone to come first that acclimated them to using some of these devices. And then the small tweak of putting the iPhone, condensing it down to a smartwatch, then it was succeeded. So mm. you don't want to repeat, you want to evolve, but you can't evolve unless you know what the formula is. Right. That's so interesting. I'd also argue that the pursuit of a copy and paste in one's career is pretty fruitless and impossible anyway, because Mm -hmm. part of what makes you you is your unique background, your unique experience. We talk a lot about, you know, bringing your authentic self to work in this podcast. And I think what's so interesting right now, especially as the efforts around diversity, equity, and inclusion become more mainstream, is that we're seeing Lin-Manuel Miranda's take on the Founding Fathers on Broadway instead of, you know, some dead white guy's take on it. You know what I mean? Like, we're starting to see more diverse voices give us new ways of looking at not new topics. So I think there's there's power in leaning back into your authentic roots, whatever that may be, and moving a conversation forward, moving your craft forward as it combines with what the masters of your craft have done, but also your unique take, your unique perspective. That's a great insight. And what I would add to that is that that could be your unique spin to the extent that you are consciously leaning into it. So Lin-Manuel Miranda is a great example because what he did was he took the existing Broadway formula Mm -hmm. and he added to it salsa and rap. That was in the Heights. Right. And then he evolved it one step further in Hamilton by adding American history. And that completely took off. And so that's an example of how what you need to do is you need to reverse engineer the winning elements and then combine them in a new way. He's the perfect example of that. Another example I'll share with you of someone who leaned into their particular traits is Malcolm Gladwell. Mm. So Gladwell was a science writer. I think it was the Washington Post where he wrote for many years. And then he moved to the New Yorker. And when he moved to the New Yorker, he had to write extended pieces, very long pieces. And he didn't know how to do that. He actually didn't have the confidence in his own writing to pursue that path. And so what he ended up doing in order to make to just take up space was he ended up incorporating academic journal articles. And that became his thing was story, article, story, article. And that be, that let, that development led to the Gladwellian style. And it was because he didn't have the confidence to write a New Yorker style piece. And so he leaned into the thing that he was good at. And so if you take yeah. a winning formula and you add the thing that you're already good at, you can create something that's genuinely new. And it's, again, not by trying to be a complete original. It's right. by trying to figure out what the formula is and just tweak it slightly. I wanted to ask you about having the confidence to do that in in a or, or feeling insecure like Gladwell was in that instance around the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And it, it relates to a part of your book that where you talk about how to talk to experts, right? Mm-hmm. How to dismantle their methods and really think about the journey, the process, the discovery. And what about the comparison trap that so many of us fall into that prevents us from even having the audacity to compare us to our heroes, to compare ourselves to the masters in our field, and to even you know feel worthy of reaching out to them or feel worthy of comparing our journeys to theirs? There's a lot of people who feel like, you know what, 
whatever they did is not going to be possible for me. So why would I fall into the comparison trap? I'm just going to stay focused on me. And your message mm-hmm. is really contrary to that. Well, you, that's a great question. There are parts to that that I can answer in, in different segments. So I would <laughs> say that here, I, I'm not sure that comparing yourself to someone else is necessarily going to be fruitful for everyone. What I think is more valuable is having the tools and having the strategies for unpacking why it is that they were successful. So what one of the arguments that I make in this book is that too many of us give up because we don't think we have the talent or we don't mm. have 10 years to practice. Right. And that those two dominant stories are preventing many people from taking risks. And so they settle. They settle on their day job. They settle on yes. just making a living and living for the weekend because greatness is for someone else. And yes. So the message of this book is no, you just need to understand how it is that they are successful. And then by unpacking and deconstructing the techniques, now you can elevate your success and, and, and succeed faster. Um, in, in terms of like talking to experts, I, I don't know that uh, – um, all experts are going to be as willing <laughs> right, to, sh- right. to share their discoveries and their process and their journey. But I do think that there are now mechanisms that you can use to get in front of them so that you can ask them the right questions and reverse engineer their success, like having a podcast like this one. Totally. Uh, five years or five or 10 years ago, that would have been you know unth- unthinkable. It's like, oh, I'm just going to get uh, on the phone with all these great experts. I'm going to ask them about their process and I'm going to f- learn how to do it. Today, it's possible for anyone if you have the right podcast or you have um, if you if you're able to place articles in a, uh, a particular publication, you totally. can get in front of anyone. So the opportunities now for deconstructing other people's work are more fruitful than they have been in the past. And so again, if you're discouraged because you don't feel like you have the right talent or you don't have mm. the right time for the practice, all the time for the practice, this is a method that allows you to be more strategic in understanding why someone else is successful. Mm. That's interesting. I like that. Yeah. In in many ways, I think the internet and social media has democratized access for better, mm-hmm. for worse, you know, to the detriment mm-hmm. of all of our inboxes. But still, you know, there are innovative ways to meet our heroes, which, you know, can be a risky proposition in its own right. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you also about the uh, strategy that you talk about in your book, Decoding Greatness, that has to do with a five-year journal and writing daily. I, I, that stood out to yeah. me because I have been keeping a journal since the third grade. I'm convinced it's what helped me write and publish my first book with wow. a mainstream publisher. And it's funny, I never would have called myself a writer just for having a journal. Uh, but what is the impact of that on on one's career long-term? Because I'm a big believer in that power as well. So, so journaling... I think a lot of people have heard the idea that when you journal, you are you get you take better control of your emotions because now you're the narrator of your story. And so rather than things happening to you, now you are explaining them in a way that gives you a sense of control. Mm-hmm. So there's value in that. But a five-year journal is a little bit different. And the reason I bring this up, just to give you a little bit of context, is that in the first half of the book, it's all about how to re- how people are reverse engineering in different fields, mm-hmm. how you can reverse engineer, and then how you can evolve someone else's formula just enough to make it unique. The second half of the book is about something called the, visu- the, the visionability gap. And what I refer to as the visionability gap simply means the gap between what you are trying to do and how effective you are at actually doing it. Now, mm. when you start 
out, you're going to not be very good at whatever it is you're trying to achieve. Maybe it's about <laughs> writing those great emails like right. that person, like your mentor or um, coaching someone else or uh, presenting. It's going to be, it's going to be a little while until you get there. And I always say the first is the worst. It's guaranteed. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and so the, the second half of the book is all about skill acquisition techniques that are science-based to help you learn faster. And one of those techniques, surprisingly enough, is journaling. And the reason I talk about it in this way is because in the research, they refer to this as reflective practice, practicing in the past. Now, we've all heard of practicing in the present. Some of us have heard of deliberate practice, which is, again, an idea that was popularized by one of the Gladwell books, Outliers. And it's the idea of of working on just the things you're not very good at and focusing on them intently, utilizing the feedback you get to improve in the future. Reflective practice, practicing in the past, has to do with keeping a five-year journal and Mm. not just writing what it is you did on that particular day, but then also looking back at what you did on that exact day a year prior. And you are able to do that in a five-year journal. It's a journal Hmm. with 365 pages, one page for every day of the year, with five slots. And on each slot, you indicate what you did on that day. And then you go on to the next page, which is the next day. But Hmm. after a year, you're able to not just indicate what you did on that day, but also read what happened to you on that day last year. And that process of constantly revisiting the past forces you to reflect on what you learned, you forces you to reflect on uh, over, overlooked victories, things that we've past successes that we've forgotten about, which raises your confidence, it strengthens your memory, and it forces you to compare your initial expectations un- against your actual experiences. And when you do that, that's the emergence of wisdom, is when you compare what you expected and then you review what actually happened. And there's mm. research out of the Harvard Business School that shows that if you just spend five minutes at the end of each day writing down what you learned that day, Mm -hmm. your performance will improve by over 20%. And so keeping a five-year journal allows you to do that. And I can tell you, I keep one myself. It has made a tremendous impact on my life because I'm constantly learning about my past experiences and seeing the mistakes. They're a little bit painful, but more often than not, (laughs) it is seeing the past wins and overblown fears. Like that's the other thing Mm. is like so many times we'll have an experience that's negative and will feel like, man, how am I ever going to get past this? And you're reminded of all of the other things that happened mm-hmm. to you in your past years where they looked pretty bleak, but you overcame them pretty quickly. And again, that raises your confidence. Yeah. It sort of forces you to take the long view, which I think is yes. so, so key. Yeah. We're big exactly planner right. people here at Boss Up. We have our own uh, sort of research in, informed planner system to mitigate uh-huh. guilt. And a big part of it is helping ourselves get out of the weeds, you know, and keep our eye on the prize, which is hard to do <laughs> in today's 100%. very busy world. Wow. Well, I appreciate your research-based approach to the work that you're you're bringing into this world, Ron. And I know my listeners are going to want to know where they can keep up with you. Where's the best place for folks to learn more about you and your work? Well, the best place to learn about this book, I'll say first, which is decodinggreatnessbook.com. And the reason I mentioned that website is because if you go there, you can purchase the book anywhere. But if you share your receipt, we'll send you a free course on how to reverse engineer in your field. So that's free and that's useful. Um, You can find out more about me at ronfriedmanphd.com or at my company website, which is ignite80.com. And the reason it's called Ignite80 is because over 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. And so the mission of Ignite80 is to teach leaders science-based strategies for lifting their employees' um, 
positivity, their, uh, their uh, goal orientation, and their productivity. Amazing. Well said. Well done. I'm so impressed. I'm so excited to dive more deeply into your work. Thanks so much for joining me, Ron. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. To get links to all of the great resources that Ron and I mentioned in today's episode, head to bossedup.org slash episode 345. That's bossedup.org slash episode 345. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move of the Week. Today, I want to give a major shout out to Hannah. Hannah is an alum of our Hired Job Search Accelerator and a longtime member of the Bossed Up Courage community. She actually joined us at Bossed Up Bootcamp years ago, and then a few months later, her mother joined us at Bossed Up Bootcamp at her recommendation, which was so fun because Hannah kind of reminds me of a younger version of myself, if I'm being honest. Uh, She's a political advocate and activist in the D.C. scene, and she and I first started working together while she was still a student. So I've just watched her rise and become a young professional before my very eyes, and it's been such a pleasure working with her. Today, I want to give her a special shout out um, because, congrats, Hannah, you just landed your first big long-term, not a campaign job, but a full-time job. I kind of want to call it a big girl job, but I I, I almost feel like that's too diminutive. Uh, As a badass junior associate at a D.C. political communications firm. So once again, Hannah, you're kind of giving me Emily Aries circa 2008 vibes, (laughs) which makes me so proud of you. And Hannah landed this role, y'all, after joining Hired as a recent college grad and securing a job initially on a really critical 2020 campaign. And then as all of us in the campaign space are familiar with, you know, come election day, win or lose, you're out of a job. So now she's starting a whole new role uh, in her target industry, in the city she wanted to live in, doing the kind of work she wanted to do with the flexibility to also work remotely on a schedule that's really ideal for her lifestyle. So Hannah, way to land an amazing job, way to stick your your pivot, so to speak, into uh, the consulting f- firm version of political work. It can be very rewarding. I'm so proud of you, and I'm so proud of how you applied all the lessons in the Higher Job Search Accelerator to really stay the course through a long and uncertain job search process. So congrats, Hannah. Way to make some boss moves. I'm so proud of you. And now, boss, I want to hear from you. What did you think about today's episode? What do you think about the concept of reverse engineering your way to greatness? Let's keep the conversation going in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook. I can't wait to see you in there. If you're not already a member, definitely get connected via the link in today's show notes. And if you've got a boss move to share or a career conundrum you want me to break down with an expert on the podcast next, give the podcast hotline a ring right now and leave me a voicemail at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. It's always a voicemail. We won't pick up on you. Don't worry. We just love to hear your voice and really feature real listener voices on the podcast whenever we can. Until next time, let's keep bossing in pursuit of our purpose and to live up to the original motto of America's first black women's clubs, let's continue to lift as we climb. 